Well, good morning again. And again, welcome to our service. Great to see so many of you here. And again, welcome to those of you online. Thank you, Dale, for that beautiful presentation of our passage today in sign language. It's beautifully done. We are continuing our study of the wonderful New Testament book of Romans. We conclude next week with a message by Pastor Andrew on Romans 16. So this book that we began last February took a break over the summer. Uh, We conclude next week. And what a wonderful book of the Bible it is. I'd like to take just a moment today at the very beginning to look at the first few verses in the book of Romans, Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 6. I think you will see those on the screens before you. You know, it's good to read through the the Bible in a read-through-the-year plan. I've done that for many years of my life. The benefit of that is you get the whole picture of the Bible in a year. But to read through the Bible in a year means you've generally got to read about four chapters or so a day. And uh, if you're like me, when you do that, you end up reading through them pretty quickly. It's also helpful to have times when you come to Scripture, to God's Word, the Bible, and you read very, very slowly, uh, meditatively, contemplatively, and ponder the words. And I'd like to take just a moment as we approach the end of this book to review these first six verses kind of slowly this morning. So would you look at them with me for just a moment? This again was written by a letter, as a letter uh, by the Apostle Paul to the church at Rome. And he begins this way, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for what? For the gospel of God. Uh, The gospel is the message, the good news of what God has done for us through Jesus, his death on the cross, his resurrection from the grave. So Paul says, I'm set apart for this message that I'm writing to you about, the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Now, what's Paul saying here? He's saying this gospel, this good news It was promised in the Old Testament. The Old Testament was all about the gospel. It pointed us to the gospel. God promised the gospel in the Old Testament scriptures. And the gospel is concerning his son, Jesus. The gospel is the gospel of Jesus Christ, who is descended from David according to the flesh. That is, Jesus came as a real flesh and blood person in the lineage of King David, according to the flesh, but he was no mere man. He was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the Spirit of holiness, that is the Holy Spirit, by his resurrection from the dead. In other words, it was the resurrection of Jesus from the grave that confirmed, that attested to the reality that he was no mere man. He really was the Son of God, God the Son. Yes, he came as a flesh and blood human, but he was more. He was the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, God the Son, raised from death to life, Jesus Christ our Lord. Through whom, Paul now says, we've received grace, that is, gifting from God and apostleship. We've been sent out to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name. 
That's an interesting little phrase, the obedience of faith. Book of Romans is all about putting faith in Jesus Christ, but Paul reminds us here that genuine faith in Jesus Christ results in obedience. The gospel is not a message that we gain salvation through our obedience. No, we can't. The gospel is the message that Jesus has secured our salvation by dying in our place on the cross and being raised from the dead. But when our faith is placed in him, our hearts are turned to follow him. He becomes our Lord. And an obedient life becomes increasingly the fruit of faith. So Paul says our preaching brings about obedience that accompanies this faith for the sake of Jesus' name. And now notice these three little words, or four little words rather, among all the nations. All the nations. These words are critically important. And one of the underlying themes in the book of Romans is that this message, the gospel, it's not just for the, the Jewish people who had the Old Testament prophets prophesying to them. It's for everybody. It's for all the nations. It's for Jews and Gentiles. And Gentiles is a way of referring to those who are not Jewish. It's for all the ethnicities, all the nations. This is a key theme in the book of Romans, including you in Rome, Paul writes, and including us who are called to belong to Jesus. Now, just one other verse before we get into today's passage. Key verse in the book of Romans, and one that uh, when David Holcomb wrote our study, I think he used as the title of the study, I'm Not Ashamed. Paul writes in Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, this message. It is the power of God for salvation to who? Everyone. Everyone who believes. To the Jew first, but also to the Greek. Our passage today is built around this reality that the early Christian church was made up of people from varied backgrounds. Not all Jewish, some Greek, Gentile, non-Jews. And last week we looked at Romans chapter 14 in which we were taught that in the early Christian church, there were those who had different viewpoints about how Christians uh, should, should serve God. Some felt uh, Old Testament dietary laws were still somewhat binding, and Paul referred to them as the weaker brothers and sisters. He referred to those who had a little more gospel understanding and liberty as the stronger, but he told the, the strong to bear with the weak. Keep in mind something. You think about the church to whom Paul was writing. It was made up of people from different races, um, different cultural, very, very, very different cultural backgrounds, different uh, socioeconomic uh, levels. In the early Christian church at Rome, there would have been many who were slaves and others who were more well-off. Imagine the diversity of background in the church. And Paul's emphasis, <clears throat> last week in chapter 14, continue today in chapter 15, <clears throat> is welcome one another, accept one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. Your identity in Jesus supersedes all the other identities, cultural identities you've held. You're one in Christ. And so chapter 15 <clears throat> begins with these words. We who are strong, and that is those who have 
perhaps a more mature grasp on what the gospel really teaches, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproach you fell on me. With this, Paul takes us into chapter 15, the way we treat one another. And the first point he seems to make is this. It is our oneness in Christ Jesus that unites us as Christians. He says in verse 5, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony, that is, to be of the same mind with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus. It is our oneness in Christ, our oneness in Jesus Christ, that brings us together as Christians, not our cultural backgrounds, not even our race, not our political views, not our social standing, not our nationality. It is our oneness in Christ that unites us. The person of Jesus Christ is the foundation of our unity. The person of Jesus Christ our oneness is through him, because of him, based on him. And Paul emphasizes this throughout his writings to the Romans, to the Corinthians, to the Ephesians. He writes to the Corinthians, I appeal to you, brothers. How? By the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, that there be no divisions among you, that you be united in the same mind and in the same judgment. Unity in Christ. Later, Paul writes to the Ephesians with these words. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Extremely important to God that His children lay aside minor differences that are not essentials of the gospel and put the interest of others above ourselves, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you are called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. In the New Testament, there are different images used of the church. One of the images is that of a body, a human body. There's only one body. It's the body of Christ, but it's made up of many different members who contribute to the health and functioning of the body. Another image is that of a building, a great holy temple in the Lord of which Jesus himself is the cornerstone. Individual believers are stones built into that temple, but there's only one. Another image is used of a family, one family of whom God is the father of all. It is our oneness in Christ Jesus that unites us as Christians. Jesus is the foundation of our unity. Paul's emphasizing this as we get into chapter 15. He stresses further that believers in unity glorify God by a united gospel witness. Paul says it this way, with one voice. Paul calls us together as believers so with one voice you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what the world around us needs to hear and see is one voice. Christians who have focused upon Jesus Christ, the essentials of his gospel, not so many 
minor things. Sometimes I've been asked this question, maybe you have too, why are, why are Christians so divided? Why are Christians bickering about minor little different things? Well, those who are really focused on the main thing, the centrality of Jesus, his lordship, the gospel of Jesus, put him over all and are not so concerned with lesser things that divide many. Many of you probably know the motto of the EPC, the Evangelical Presbyterian Church, of which we're a part is this, in essentials unity, in non-essentials liberty, in all things charity or love. In essentials unity, that is the very essentials of the gospel, the deity of Jesus Christ, the reality of the Trinity, the fact that Jesus died on the cross in our place, shed his blood to pay for our sins, and was raised from the dead, these are essentials. Salvation by grace through faith in Jesus. These are essentials. In essentials, unity. and non-essentials, liberty. It's typically the non-essentials that we see people bickering over that's dividing people. Non-essentials have some liberty, have some grace. We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. And all these things, love. Love over all. One voice. And then thirdly, we're to treat one another as Christ has treated us. Paul's making this point, I think he's, he's drawing to this point, the first seven verses of Romans chapter 15, we're to treat one another like Christ has treated us. Therefore, he writes, welcome one another or receive one another as members of the same body, one body of Christ. Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you to the glory of God. The weak believer who doesn't quite have the understanding you have, doesn't quite see things the way you see them, holds different views of some type, that person's put faith in Jesus. Welcome that person. How? As Christ welcomed you to the glory of God. And then Paul notes three things about Christ and the way he has welcomed us. Number one, Christ came as a servant. He became a servant. He writes in verse 8, For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness. Now, the, the circumcised is a reference to Jews, Jewish people. It's notable that Jesus came not as a mighty military ruler, not as a king. God the Son, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity came, though it's hard to believe, as a servant. If you read through the Gospels, you see this about Jesus everywhere, and you see it right before he went to the cross when he called his disciples together. He took a towel, he took a basin, and he did what household servants did in those days. He knelt down and he washed the dirty feet of his disciples. Why did he do that? Here's what he said. He said, for I've given you an example that you also should do just as I've done for you. When his disciples bickered over who was the greatest, he said, the greatest of you, the greatest one, is the servant of all. The one who will be the servant of all. That's, that's the great one. The Apostle Paul, when he wrote to the Philippians, was calling for this type of unity, preferring others above ourselves, putting the interest of other believers first, being bound together by the love of Christ. 
And the words he writes here are, are some of my favorite in the New Testament to use in uh, a Christian wedding. They're not traditional wedding verses, but I think they're verses that are particularly necessary and valuable and helpful and, frankly, very challenging for a Christian marriage. And Paul points it all to the example of Jesus when he writes these words, do nothing, nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Does it seem challenging for those of you who are married so far to apply this in a marriage? I find these words particularly challenging. Have this attitude, this mind among yourselves. Now, whose example are we following? Which is yours in Christ Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. That is, he didn't cling to his place as deity in heaven, as the second person of the Trinity, but he emptied himself. He laid aside those rights by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And then Paul will point to his crucifixion. Jesus came as a servant. He calls his followers to do the same. And as Paul tells us, welcome one another, receive one another as God has received you, has welcomed you. This is the way to treat others in the church. Follow the example of Jesus in his servanthood. Furthermore, Paul continues, Christ came as a servant to the circumcised in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. That is, Christ came to confirm the truthfulness of God's promises. What does that mean? The patriarchs are those who were the father of the fathers of the Jewish nation, starting with Abraham, probably the greatest of the patriarchs. Abraham was the one to whom God gave the promise. You're going to have children, even though your wife, he and his wife were old and didn't have children. You're going to have offspring, and your offspring are going to be like the sand of the seashore that can't be numbered. And through your offspring, all nations, all nations of the world, of this earth, are going to be blessed. This great promise was a promise of the gospel. What Paul is saying is that Christ is the fulfillment of those promises given to Abraham, affirmed to Isaac, Jacob, the patriarchs. Jesus is the fulfillment of those promises. And Jesus wasn't what the Jews were expecting, certainly. And they probably weren't expecting one who would welcome all people, including non-Jews. But that's what Jesus came to do. Thirdly, Paul continues, Christ welcomed those who were without hope, the Gentiles. Not only did he come as a servant, did he come to fulfill the Old Testament promises to Abraham and others, but he came to welcome those who were excluded at that time, the Gentiles. And in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy, as it is written, and now Paul quotes from the Old Testament, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing your name. And again it is said, quoting from the Psalms, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, quoting from Psalm 117, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, 
and let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, and him will the Gentiles hope. Paul here quotes from Psalm 18, from Psalm 117, from Isaiah chapter 11 to make the point that Jesus is the fulfillment, the fulfiller of all the Old Testament promises. Jesus is the one who ties all of Scripture together, who ties the great plan of God together. Jesus ties it all together. As Paul said in the very beginning of Romans, about this gospel that is for all nations, Jesus of himself would apply the scriptures of Moses and all the prophets to himself as we read in Luke chapter 24. <clears throat> Remember Paul's words, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to all who believe, Jew first, also Greek, all people. Right in the midst of this teaching about welcoming one another with the servanthood attitude of Jesus, Paul makes a, a very, some very important points about the Scripture and the way Jesus fulfills them. Scriptures, first of all, centered on Jesus. And we see this as Paul's quoting from the Psalms, he's quoting from Isaiah, he's saying it, it's all pointing to Jesus. It's centered on Him. Secondly, it's written to instruct us and then thirdly, it's written to give us endurance. Any of you need endurance in your walk with God? Perseverance, encouragement, and hope. And right in the middle of this section of Scripture where Paul is talking about Jesus as our example and the need to, to receive one another, those of us who are, are stronger in gospel understanding, even those who are weaker, he notes this, for Christ, he's our example. We're to welcome one another as he welcomed us. Remember that Christ didn't please himself. But as it's written, the reproaches of those who reproach you fell on me. By the way, this is another Old Testament. This is from Psalm 69 and verse 9. Paul saying it's written about Jesus. Yes, a thousand years before Christ came, David was writing that psalm in reference to Jesus Christ. And then Paul says this, one of the most important verses in the, in the New Testament for our understanding of what Scripture is. For whatever was written in former days, he's talking about the Old Testament now, whatever was written in former days, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the Prophets, the Psalms, the Proverbs, Daniel, whatever was written in former days was written for who? For our instruction to teach us heard an American pastor, well-known, a couple years ago. I couldn't believe it when he said Christians need to unhitch from the Old Testament. That's not true. Christians need to understand the Old Testament because the Old Testament points us to Jesus. Whatever was written in the former days was written for our instruction that through endurance, that is perseverance, and the encouragement the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. God has given us the scriptures for many purposes to teach us, to equip us, to guide us, to wash us, to cleanse us, to sanctify us, but also to encourage us. When you're discouraged, where do you go for hope? This is a great source of hope for the believer. 
encouragement. The Holy Spirit breathes his encouragement through the words of Scripture that he's already inspired, the encouragement of the Scriptures that we might have hope. So as we reflect on this, a couple of questions I, I would ask by way of personal application. The first is this. Ask ourselves this, rather. Have I received what Jesus came to provide for me? He came to die on a cross where he would take your place there. He would bear your judgment. He would die your death. So that through your faith in him, you could actually be credited with his righteousness. His right standing before our infinitely holy Father God. Secondly, is there someone whom I need to treat as Jesus treated me? Some people are hard to get along with. Have you discovered that in life? Have you discovered that some Christians are hard to get along with? Welcome the ones weak in faith. Welcome the ones with different views. Welcome the ones with different cultural practices and understandings and backgrounds in essentials unity, but in non-essentials liberty in all things love. I'd like to close in prayer now, but I'd like to close a little differently. I'd like to take a few minutes, maybe three or four, maybe even five, and I'd like to pray through the book of Romans some verses for you and me, that God, by his Holy Spirit, would make them a reality in our lives. Maybe you're here today and you, you, you need direction. Maybe you need uh, encouragement. Maybe you're very frustrated with where you're, where you're at in life. Maybe you're doing great. Just need to be reminded of what God's done for you through Jesus. But would you join me for just a few minutes? Well, come back and worship the Lord in just a moment, but I'd like to just have a few minutes of prayer right now and invite you just to receive these verses as they are prayed for you and over you. So let's pray together right now. Fathers, we come in the name of Jesus Christ. I pray that you, Lord, would make these words a reality for your people. From Romans 1, verse 7, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace. From Romans 1, 16, may you receive and boldly share the gospel. May you never be ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. From Romans chapter 3, may you know that you're a sinner who's fallen short of the glory of God, but may you also know, according to Romans 3, 24, that you are justified by God's grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. May the words of Romans 4, 7, and 8 be true of you. Blessed, blessed are those who law, whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man, the woman, the child. Blessed is the one against whom the Lord will not count his sin.
May you who have embraced Jesus embrace the reality of Romans 5 and verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. May you know you have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. May you live by Romans 6.14 because of what Jesus has done for you. Sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. May Romans 7 and verse 6 be a reality for you. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. May Romans 8 and verse 1 ring true in your soul that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ has set you free from the law of sin and death. And may the verses at the end of Romans chapter 8 always be imprinted upon your soul. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. As a believer in Jesus, as a disciple, as his follower, may you live out the reality of Romans 12 verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And may you live out Romans 12, verses 9 and 10. May your love be genuine. May you abhor what is evil. May you hold fast to what is good. May you love one another with brotherly affection. And may you not be overcome by evil, but may you overcome evil with good. According to Romans 13, verse 8, would you fulfill the law of love? In Romans 14 and verse 13, don't pass judgment on one another. Rather, decide never to put a stumbling block in the way of a brother. And according to Romans 15, may you be strong and may you bear with the failings of the weak and not please yourselves. May you welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. And may this benediction be true for you. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. In the holy name of Jesus, amen.